Can you hear me now? Yes. It makes me really nervous because I did just flip the switch. So I wonder what else you heard when I thought the switch was off. Uh, grateful for representing the freedom and uh, some of the beautiful things of July 4th. I want to mention some of the other things that we've done with our freedom that would be a little less uh, noble. Um, here are some dangerous things that used to be legal. Dangerous things in our country that used to be legal. And we'll go right into our passage this morning. Go ahead and flip one up. This, okay? Any of you ever ridden in the back of a pickup? Anybody ever fallen out of the back of a pickup? Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Sound guy, yep. Nothing's ever right with the sound guy. Anybody ever knock somebody out of the back of the pickup? Shelly Bicking, I did, 17 years old, right out the back. Okay, um, this used to be a legal thing. Now this, Wizard of Oz used to be legal, that's a problem in and of itself. But the snow, you might not know this, was toxic, 100% toxic asbestos that was used in this scene. As with asbestos for many different things, they used it in stage props. So that scarecrow was a little funny for many reasons. Other things that used to be legal. Okay, you can sort of see this. This is an actual photo of a mail carrier carrying mail. That mail is a child. In 1913, in Ohio, they had, there's many different things you could send in the mail, and someone decided, I'm going to send my baby to the grandparents' house. And for 15 cents of stamps in 1913, a child was sent in the mail to the grandparents' house. Now, some of you who have one child, you're absolutely horrified. If you're up to like child four or five, you're like, oh, 15 cents. Okay. <laughs> it existed from 1913 to 1916. The longest distance a child was ever carried by mail was 720 miles. Another thing that used to be legal, these were called baby cages. And in early, right around the late 1800s, some doctor, smarty pants, said that babies need to be, and he used this word, aired out. They need to be exposed. And so in New York City, they were having trouble figuring out how could you air out babies when they need to be inside so much. These were built into high-rises. You could purchase them and put these in high-rises. Eleanor Roosevelt um, did this with their child, Anna. These baby cages were put out of high-rises, and you would sit the baby in there to air the baby out. It's amazing some of y'all lived. Okay. <laughs> Anybody remember this thing? Yes. Now, this is a merry-go-round, and I know some of you are like, man, I used to love that thing. Some of you sicko parents are like, man, did I spin the heck out of my kids, right? These became illegal not that many years ago because of many lawsuits, primarily in New Jersey. <laughs> Go figure. And then lastly, cocaine toothache drops instantaneous cure. Go figure, right? Selling cocaine in various places, dangerous things that used to be legal. We come this morning into Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, as we've been talking about the longest sermon Jesus gives, 
goes through the Beatitudes, talking about the values of the kingdom of God. And then after the Beatitudes transitions to these life statements about practical living in the kingdom of God. And we have walked through the different segments of practical life, of what life looks like under the governorship, under the kingship under the benevolent reign of Jesus. And today, we come to a passage about retaliation. How does retaliation and the kingdom of God operate? This is in verse 38. This, as we read it, I want us to really recognize these are not idealistic words that Jesus spoke. They are extreme. They are significant. They are dangerous. And I'll share why I believe they are in just a minute. Verse 38 to 42, Jesus says this. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Lord, we give you our time this morning. We thank you for the place and space and time to do so. We pray for understanding to treat your words seriously. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to speak of the danger of this passage. Number one, this passage is dangerous because what Jesus is asking of his followers is significant. The kingdom calling is not a small one. These principles of the kingdom, how we live together, it's with people It's with mess. It's with pain. It's with being hurt by one another. And that's specifically what is talking about how we are called to operate when we are hurt and mistreated by one another. This calling takes a tremendous amount of Holy Spirit strength, strength to quiet our vindictive responses, and strength to love when it's really hard. And we see in the passage that love includes my body, my stuff, my time, my energy, and my wealth. Larry Crabb offers a quote that has meant much to me in my own journey with Christ. He said this simply, you can live to be comfortable or you can live to know God. Many people who followed this Jesus, who heard these words for the first time, would end up losing their very lives. This significance of this calling is tremendous. Secondly, the danger of this passage is because Christ is offering a threat to our felt sense of comfort. That's first. Secondly, is that oppressors and abusers can use this passage to destroy people. 
What does it mean to turn the other cheek for a nine-year-old that's getting physically beaten by one of his parents? What does it mean when someone is being harassed or discriminated against in the workplace and they hear this passage? What does it mean to give to the person who asked you and don't turn away from the ones who wants to borrow you when a friend or a relative is draining your finances dry because of their life choices? What does it mean when a spouse continues to lie, manipulate, and take advantage of the other spouse financially, sexually, emotionally, and oppresses them with various types of aggression? Jesus, what does this mean? This passage, this passage has been used by many oppressors to demand forgiveness and manipulate people into accepting further mistreatment for hundreds of years. What do we do with these words, these dangerous words of Christ? Simply, as we enter, we need to recognize what do we do with danger of any type What we quickly do when faced with anything that feels threatening, we rival against it. We rival against it. We want to fight it. We want to flee it. We want to rationalize it. Let's approach this sacred passage, not with trying to write around it, get away from it, but with compassion, recognition. There's a lot of trauma in this room. There's a lot of trigger in this room. Some of that trigger is like, oh, what does God want of my stuff as I look at this passage? Some of it is, what does this passage mean when I am being mistreated today? So let's enter with compassion as we recognize the significance of the text. Let's look at the interpretation here of what Jesus is saying. First, Jesus enters with this statement. You've heard that it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, what he's referring back to, and then he goes on to give some situations of what he is saying. But he's referring back to what it means, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. This is going back to a few different, three different um, Old Testament passages, two of them for you. Exodus 21, 24 says, if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Exodus 21, 24, Leviticus 24, 20. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Going back again to the Mosaic law in these passages, in what Jesus is referring to, it's obvious to see that these offenses can be severe. Every person who has been hurt by someone else deeply knows that offenses of various types can be severe. We humans have incredible ability to hurt one another. Eyes and teeth is what Jesus pulls out to speak of this Taking something that cannot be replaced, something that would have caused tremendous pain to the individual to lose an eye or a tooth. 
These offenses required punishment. These punishments should be of equal severity to the offense. This is retribution equivalency. Let the punishment fit the crime. Now these passages and these, this rule of law this, this in the, the Mosaic Covenant was given litigiously. It was given to the judges. It was given for how the, the Jewish nation should operate legally. However, the the laws of the land and the punishment for the crime. However, this law became used as a principle for spiritual living. Retribution became a supported principle of how to treat one another. And Jesus is coming in light of this type of thinking, this type of world, and saying this is not the way that my spiritual kingdom operates and these four images that are four situations that he will talk about confront the attitude of revenge or retribution and the the situations I'm going to be honest as I'm looking through the situations even as I was reading commentaries you want to dumb down what Jesus is saying you want to dilute it so it can go down a little easier but what he is, the situations that he, are, he is using, they really are significant first. Jesus says, what I say unto you is when someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to the other also. First situation, it's significant that Jesus uses the right cheek. Okay, so, so using a slap would typically be given by the right hand. In lots of different cultures throughout history, and definitely in this culture, the left hand was used for some things that are not, you didn't use your left hand for a lot of other things. So with the right hand, to slap on the right cheek would actually be a backhand slap. This backhanded slap was one of insult or or subordination. It was a get in line, do what I say, I am higher than you type of slap across the cheek. What is, and, and, and the calling then was not to just retaliate with a similar response. Jesus is saying that there is no such thing as revenge in the kingdom of God. Look through the the text we've just looked at. Jesus talks about anger. Is there a place for anger in the kingdom of God? Yes, there is. There's not an outlawing of anger. There can be sexuality, right? We talked about lust. Is there a place for sexuality in the kingdom of God based upon our text? Yes. Is there a place for divorce a couple passages ago? Yes, there are biblical allowances for divorce. It is going through different operations of the kingdom of God and saying, and saying how we should do certain things. When it comes to revenge, there is not an allowance. There is not room for revenge in the kingdom of God. Any activity or action by a, made by a heart of getting even, showing them theirs, wanting them to pay for their sins, simply is not from the heart of Christ. Dallas Willard says, the reason why we withhold good from someone, the grounds of this will never be personal retaliation. 
And there will never, as I live, be room in the kingdom of God for getting even. Mike Tyson, big time theologian, says, everyone has a plan until you're what? Until you're punched in the face. Peter says, when you are hit, when you absorb a blow, this is the ethic of the church, 1 Peter 3, 9. Do not repay evil for evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Second thing that Jesus talks about. It says if you, if you are sued, right? This is, this is suing of possessions. If you're in a lawsuit and someone takes your cloak, give him your, or someone takes your tunic, give him your cloak as well. The mechanics of this is that's all you got. You got sandals, some headgear, and a cloak and tunic. If someone, typically someone would have one tunic that goes over the coat or cloak. This week I found myself again trying to head, hmm, what does this exactly mean? This is meaning most literally Jesus is saying use whatever possession you have for the sake of the kingdom of God. Often case your, your outer uh, tunic was used as your bedding. It was your pillow that you slept on. It was what kept you warm. To take away these two garments, if you did not have garments to replace them, you would have nothing left, left but foot and head gear. It is to say, it is in the first, we look at turning the other cheek, it is our body. Now Jesus turns to our possessions. What? That, that our possessions matter less than our message so that if my, by the giving up of my possessions demonstrates to this person or who is suing me a greater message of my Christ, that matters more than my stuff. Our dignity matters less than our message. This is what Christ did when he was stripped of cloak and tunic and laid naked on the cross. Why? Because Christ's love was more important than his possession or his dignity. All was given for the sake of the radical calling of living love for another. Craig Keener talks on this part. He says, nothing anyone takes from us matters in the end anyway. We must love our enemies and seek to turn them into friends. Number three, the asking to, it says if, if one asks you to go one mile, go with him two miles. In, in Roman culture, a Roman soldier could ask you to go or could tell you, you must go with me one mile and carry my stuff Carry my, my bedding, my armor, my equipment. And, and he could enlist anyone that he wanted to carry the, the, his stuff for him of distance up to one mile. Jesus in this, can you, I mean, can you imagine the inconvenience of what this would be? It's not like people were just sitting there waiting in line. I'm just, what are you doing? Man, I'm just, I'm looking for the next Roman soldier because I want to get my mile in today, right? I got my steps to get and I want some good equipment to carry. No, people of their own day, 
They have their own stuff. They're carrying their own things. They're doing their own work. They're spending time with their own family. But at any time, a Roman soldier could tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, you, go with me one mile, which we all know means carry stuff one mile and then walk one mile back. Jesus is saying, how about two miles? Two miles back. Instead of going with him one mile, go with him two miles. Instead of being begrudgingly obedient citizen who obeys out of fear, live a life of love and go further. Number four. So that's in, 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 I'm sorry, in number three, the request is for your time and your energy. You see what Jesus is doing here? He says your very body, number one. Your, your, your very stuff, your possessions, number two. Number three, your time and your energy. And lastly, Jesus comes to this fourth request. If anyone asks of you, give them. If anyone desires to borrow from you, respond with benevolence. John, who watched Jesus operate, says this in 1 John 3, 17. says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? This is the calling that God himself lives. Later in this chapter... There's a very similar phrasing to this, give to the one who asks you, don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. It's, in, it's when Jesus is talking about the Father. He says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you shall find, and talks about how the Father does not withhold good. This is not convenient generosity. This is not if I can comfortably afford this. These are radical things. These are things that if we're completely honest, we don't really want Jesus to say. And I know there are phrases I'm even using that some of you are like, too far. And I understand, and maybe some of my phrases aren't clear enough. But Jesus's are. What Jesus is saying here is significant, and we can't for the sake of comfort, pretend he's not saying it. They're radical things to do in response to mistreatment, harm, or severe inconvenience. How do we do this? Because this is not just theory. This is everyday life that you and I face these types of situations. I've wrestled with that this week. We got a very rickety gate here, and we got a very sturdy door. I built that one. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. Um, I, I want to talk practically about when we come up against difficult situations, how do we, how do we handle them? H- how do we deal with the fact that we have limited time, money, resources? H- how do we handle this passage? And, and these, this is not to be clever It's to be clear. Three things I want to say to advocate for for us to be a door, not a swinging gate. Be a door, not a swinging gate. 
First thing I want to mention about a door when it comes to this situation is that a door opens from the inside, right? A good door, right? right? A good door opens from the inside. It's important. It's important. A door doesn't get knocked in by whoever wants to at whatever time. The power in a good door is not that it can be accessed at any time by anyone from the outside. The importance is that it is up to the one inside. The one inside has, and this word I mean in a really good way, power. A swinging gate is different. A swinging gate, whoever pushes or pulls on it, they have the power to determine who gets in and get out. It is the decision of the one being harmed, of the one who has experienced some type of personal injury. It is their choice how to respond. The power is not in the hand of those asking or those harming. It is in the control of the person being harmed. This passage is not given to people of how to break down doors. This passage is given to people who have the strength and the power to respond. Jesus is not saying give this choice to someone else. He is not saying surrender your power to someone else's choices. He is saying with your power choose love. But that door opens from the inside. It is the choice of the person. The swinging gate has no strength to decide what gets in and what gets out. Ultimately, it just has to receive whatever comes its way. It's too hard to say no. There's not enough resistance there to block anything out. If you push hard enough, you will get in to a swinging gate. A dear friend of mine, a person I love, said this to me one time. She said, hey Ben, you know why we make you feel guilty? Guilt is a thing. I'm good at guilt, right? I feel guilty really easily sometimes. So I wanted to know, why do people make me feel guilty? You know what she said? She said, we make you feel guilty because we can. And I thought, people are like that, (laughs) right? Because what she's saying is, when we make you feel guilty, we take your power. You're not deciding what is love, what is good, what what should be done. When you're guilty, you're weak. And this has happened and some of you understand this. When I can make you afraid, when I can make you feel guilty, I can come in and out, ask of whatever I want and you will do it. Another person, a church person was saying, man, what I like about Ben is he'll just say yes to everything. And I'm like, what? You can say that out loud? You can say you like that? No, why? Because, because you know what, I can just do whatever I want. It was a long time ago they said that, by the way. But I'm much healthier, right? But a swing gate just accepts whatever comes its way and it's not seen by the person as man that person really loves me it's not seen as love it's seen as opportunity it's very important to know the door opens from the inside because power is an important thing to maintain when oppressed an abuser tries to remove power from you that is not the calling in the text 
There is also a wisdom. There is a wisdom to know when to open the door and when not to open the door. Uh, even in the passage, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, give them the, the other also. Jesus did not always practice that. Jesus, in fact, was struck on the right cheek. He did not turn the other also on the night when he was betrayed. Paul himself was struck physically, did not turn the other cheek, but stood up for himself. Neither of them retaliated in anger, but this situation, there is a situational understanding here of when to yield, when to give of self, and when not to. Number three, I'm sorry, in this understanding power, understanding wisdom, and understanding love. This gate looks real noble. And said, wow, look at all the people going in and out of there, all the stuff. This Want to move? Yeah, I'll go help you move. You want to do nursery? Oh, yeah, I can do nursery, right? There's this sense of I'll do whatever you need me to do. It's like, man, you want to get something done, get somebody who's a swinging gate because they're a yes machine, right? And it can feel like maybe that's love. Calvin has a great quote. John Calvin, a great quote on this. He calls the mischief maker as the one who pounds the door or tries to get through the gate. And he speaks of how it's not always love for the mischief maker to be allowed to do or get whatever they want. It is not the strength of love to let someone be in a continual oppressor. The greatest act to many mischief makers is to say no. The door is not open for you right now. Why? Because it's the greatest act of love and for many can be the very beginning of their salvation. Second thing, door opens from the inside. Second thing, and from this, a door has the ability to protect, whereas a swinging gate can prevent no harm the, 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 a door can, if you think of a door of a house, it, it prevents danger. Part of the function is that it's a door, not a doorway. If you try to get in on a door, part of its function is it protects those inside from those on the outside. There are situations where it is dangerous, and that word is important, where the people trying to come in are a significant threat to the individual on the inside. The door has the ability to protect. A swinging gate literally goes open and shut for anyone at any time with any request without regard to who lives on the inside. It can prevent harm. Also, a door protecting. There's a matter of development here. You don't ask a seven-year-old to apply this passage. You don't. In the same way you ask someone who's known Christ for a long time. If you've got a seven-year-old that's getting pounded at your school, you don't sit there and say, listen, Johnny, we don't really know if you believe in Jesus or not, but here's what you do. You sit there and you take it over and over and over. That's the calling. That's not the calling for a seven-year-old. It's not. There is a developmental process. I believe this Peter talks about the spiritual development. Jesus in John 16, 12 talks about the spiritual development of when we are even able to hear certain truths. This 
calling of responding with over-the-top love and gratitude when oppressed is a, a, there is some matter of spiritual and emotional development. You need to have something to give something. Also matters of limitation. Jesus did not say yes to every situation. Jesus protected his earthly body and situations at times. This morning I walked in and noticed the books that we have on our resource shelf. The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. This is a great book. Seeking Rest. This is by our own uh, Joanne and Sarah wrote this wonderful devotional. Rest. Missionaries that we support. Uh, Sean and uh, Harold Ebersol, dear people, wrote a book called Rest. Dane Ortland, this is a wonderful book about the character of our Jesus, gentle and lowly. You can't live this stuff out if you say yes to everything. If you say yes to everything, you're not going to rest. You can't eliminate hurry. You don't have the disposition left to be gentle and lowly and receiving. A door must operate with some protection. And, and what I will say for, for those of us who struggle with um, swinging gateness, in CR we have a healthy word called codependency for this, where we can just allow really any need or any situation to kind of take us in. It's not just terrible bullies that go in and out of swinging gates. That's important to know. It's not just how awful people are that they come in and out. Sometimes it's just because we don't have the door type strength to say no even to good things. Within the first couple years of being a pastor here, I was burning out for probably 18 months. And the responsibilities I had, were, were, they were bigger than me. And they were bigger than I was called to have with Christ. And I kept pushing. And I literally would daydream about one of the other pastors coming up and saying, I'm making this choice for you. You're doing too much. You got a young family. You're burning out. You're done in this ministry so you can focus on this ministry. I would daydream about it but I wouldn't do anything myself. I just let opportunities and ministries and can you do this come in and out. Does that mean people were bad? How dare they ask me of something? No, knocking is never bad. Requesting is not bad. It was that I did not have the strength to give good people any type of no. I can't do that. The swinging gate cannot blame other people that go in and out all the time. A swinging gate must recognize it needs more strength to protect. It is on those of us who struggle with this to stand up. It is what makes us grow in our faith also, often. often. Lastly, a swinging uh, door welcomes. This is the very point of entry into a home, the very place where we welcome others. And a swinging gate has nothing left to give. Everything has been taken if all we ever do is take blow after blow. If all you do is walk mile after mile, you'll have nothing left to give. 
If we just experience mistreatment, people will eventually, not even being, knowing they're being bad, will take all of our resources from us. I know there are many in this room and many online that know this truth deeply. You cannot tend to others well after you have been beaten and walked into the ground. And some of you are like, yes, door Christianity. Keep it tough, buddy. I saw there's this tough guy, pastor, who's talking about his church who's no longer there, but he's really mad at him this last week. And he, he called this church a bunch of something like evangelicals. First off, I'm like, that's kind of clever, right? But just like, oh, a bunch of softies. Christians just let themselves walk over, right? Yes, can't be a swinging gay. Gotta protect so many sissy Christians out there. People have to learn to stand up for themselves, right? I understand. Some of you have that tough energy. But this is not primarily what the passage is about. I mean, I'm sorry, this is, this is what the, the, the primary purpose of the passage is not how to shut your door and hold it. This is what I want to say. The primary disposition of our lives is meant to have an open door. Yes, the ability to close, we can't do everything. Yes, the power retains in our decisions, in what and when to give. But this calling here that Jesus is saying, it's not small. As dearly loved children, Paul writes, walk in the way of love. I don't believe this, this is meant to be a checklist passage. I don't believe it's meant to be a, this one thing happened, so what's the direct response? It's meant to be a principle of how the disposition of our life operates. We operate in absorbing a lot of things that happen wrong to us. We operate in forgiveness. And we operate in hosting others in generosity. And some of the people we will host, they're going to hurt us. And that's, that really is rough. But it really is, at times, our calling. The normal state of those who know that they are deeply loved by the Father is to respond with open doors. Not defensive, not suspicious, not gaining a single ounce of energy by rallying against those they feel like are their enemies. We absorb some blows from one another. We're ready to offer help to one another. The resources of forgiveness and positive regard flow freely here. Doors that can close, yes, when it's wise and loving to do so. But the natural disposition of our souls is that our doors are open and available to host the needs of others. We operate in trust forgiveness and generosity because we learn this from our king who knows what fear is. He knows what sin is. He knows what relational and physical and spiritual trauma are. And still he opened 
his arms to receive and give love. You see, it's this gospel of Jesus, this open door gospel of Jesus that opens and has room for a weary and cynical and burnout, resource-deprived world. If the community of Christ is a neighborhood of closed doors, why would anyone want to move in? Our very testimony of Christ, our very calling when being wrong is to say, there is room for you here. Room for you to make mistakes, for you to hurt and be hurt. We here can absorb and even host the messiness of life. To that great end, we're willing to give of our own stuff, our own body, our own time, our own wealth. 1 Corinthians 13 is probably the most famous passage in the New Testament. Matt Smethurst writes about this passage and says this, in order to embody the majority of the descriptions of love in 1 Corinthians 13, someone has to hurt you first. I'm going to conclude with this beautiful passage and then we will be dismissed. If I speak in the tongues of men and angel, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, if I turn my body to be over to body to be burned, my gosh, there's so much swinging gate here, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and it's kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. Does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is an open door. We are dismissed.